hope you don't mind, but this morning it's going to be a little bit of a Bible study. Uh, I mean, as, as disciples of Jesus, you shouldn't mind it being a bit of a Bible study. Yeah. Um, so Matthew 24, we're basically we're going to look at this whole chapter, not today, but in, in sections, because Jesus talks about the end times. Okay, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Hey, Jesus, aren't these buildings amazing? In Mark, it says that the disciples were marvelling at the massive stones and the magnificence of the architecture. Have you ever been on holiday or gone somewhere and thought, how did they do that? How did they get those massive stones to there? Or how, how did they get them all the way up there? From my experience, I was riding my, on a bike with my daughter Emily in France, and we came across this massive nuclear power plant cooling chimney. It was, it was retired, so it wasn't used. And it was, we just went around the corner, and all of a sudden, you look up, and it's all brick-built as well. It wasn't like one concrete block. It was tiny bricks built into this amazing kind of uh, concave structure that just went up for miles. And it was so impressive that we had to stop our bike ride and we went into the EDF nuclear power plant somewhere in France. And, And we went in and we asked, in our best French English, did they have a visitor centre? Because we just wanted to find out what this amazing tower and then other towers did. So that was, that, was, that was my impressive kind of moment there. But we human beings, we can build really impressive and monumental structures when we put our minds and our backs into it, can't we? But as impressive as these impressive things are, can we trust that they'll last forever? No. Will any of our human endeavours last forever? Well... Will, it, will they stand the test of time? Okay, so let's read on with what Jesus replies, because they said, Jesus, aren't these stones amazing? Look at the size of them. And Jesus said, do you see all these things? Verse 2, he asked. Truly I tell you, no, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, one solid and steadfast thing we can truly rely on is the word of God. What Jesus says, it will happen. Whatever Jesus says will happen, will happen. And sure enough, true to what Jesus said, the impressive temple structure, which had been around for 585 years, was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So 40 years after Jesus said, mark my words, a teacher once said that in a class, and one of the kids called out and said, five out of ten. Mark my words. As a teacher. It was true. It was Stephen Jones. Called out to Mr. Zyle, I think it was. Mark my words. And he said, five out of ten. We thought that was very funny at the time. But, mark my words, Jesus said, even these massive stones, there'll come a time when they're toppled over. Not one stone will be left on that. And sure enough, 40 years later, in AD 70, the Romans set, set fire to the temple and literally knocked every stone off and destroyed it. Does anything last forever? In fact, further down in the passage, now don't, this is going to be another prize winning, so don't turn to verse 35, but later on in this passage, 
Jesus says that even heaven and earth, now what he meant by heaven was the heavens, the atmosphere of earth, even heaven and earth will be destroyed, will fall away. But there's one thing Jesus said that won't. Can you remember what it is? His words, yes. Oh, this is the empty one. We don't want an empty one, do you? That was, that was Mike's one. There you go. Have a dimmer switch. All right. These dimmer switches, by the way, can be swapped for Twixes later. Okay. So Jesus said that even earth and the atmosphere will pass away, will fall away, but my words will never fall away. They'll never disappear. Okay. What Jesus has said will come to pass. If it hasn't already, it will do. And whatever Jesus had said will always last. Other things will fall away, but whatever Jesus said will come to pass and it will always last. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so they've walked away from the temple now and they're going to Jesus' favourite place, the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Meaning the destruction of the temple and all these stones being toppled over. And they said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's three questions there. When will this happen to the temple? When will your return happen? And when will be the end of the age? Okay. Well... By this time, the disciples had correctly concluded that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah because he had told them so and he had revealed to them so. From what he did, it proved he was the Messiah. But they also knew from some of the parables that Jesus spoke of going away and coming back again and from their knowledge of Old Testament scripture that the Messiah would have a second coming or return. Jesus, we know that you've come once, when are you going to come again? Okay, the disciples already had understanding from what he told them and their Old Testament scripture knowledge that the Messiah, who he was, was going to come a second time. Okay, so that's what they're asking. When are you coming again? And when's the end of the age? Not only had the Old Testament scriptures predicted Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, also the Old Testament have predicted that the Messiah would have a second coming. Okay, a triumphant second coming. Verse 3, we'll repeat it. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now, if you look up Wikipedia on Google, you'll see throughout the ages there have been loads of people who are claiming to be Jesus or the Messiah. Even currently, there's a guy in Serbia. He was arrested in 2020 by the Russians for leading a cult, but they let him go, and he's still there somewhere in a hamlet. He's got about five to 10,000 followers. He is the reincarnation of Jesus, he says. He used to be a traffic police officer. But... Yeah. Okay, so we mustn't be deceived. There's only one Messiah, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word 
for Messiah is Christ. So basically, Messiah, Christ, same thing. There's only one, and it's Jesus himself. And Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. There is no other way. There is only one Messiah, and he's the only way. And elsewhere in New Testament scripture, it confirms that salvation is in Acts 4. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. Jesus warned that many would be deceived by many, claiming they or their religion is the way. Okay? However, Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life, left us in no doubt that there's only one way to God. There may be many ways to many false gods, but there is only one way to the one true God, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He came once. He came from heaven. He was born of a virgin to become a human being just like you and I. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And even though he was sinless, he died on the cross bearing our sin and the guilt and punishment of that sin upon himself. He took it to hell. He dumped it in hell. He rose victorious on the third day and he ascended back to heaven. That's what Jesus did. And he will return again to gather those that belong to him. Okay? So they just asked him, when's this going to happen? When's the second coming? And when's the end of the age? Okay? Verse 6, this is Jesus' reply. Many will try and deceive you, saying that I'm the Messiah. And then verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. How on earth can Jesus tell us not to be alarmed at wars when wars are so alarming? Particularly if you are in the midst of one. I mean, it's not so bad for us, is it? We, we hear about the war, we see about the war on the news, and we think, is it coming our way? Are we going to get involved? But it must be horrific and very tempting to be alarmed, even if you're a born-again Christian in the midst of what's going on. Now, the original 12 disciples knew what it was like to be alarmed. Just ask them of the time. Remember the time, Peter and the gang? Remember when you were in that boat, Jesus was asleep, and there was a massive storm, and you thought you were going to die. We're going to drown. They were alarmed, weren't they? Why is it so tempting to be alarmed, even if Jesus is right there with you, the God of the universe? Why is it so tempting to be alarmed? It's because our mind is so used to allowing what we see to trump what we believe but can't see. You know what you believe, but your eyes are telling you something else, and it's so easy for your mind to believe your eyes than what it is to believe what you can't see but believe. What they could see were the waves threatening to crush their boat, but what they couldn't see was what Jesus was about to do. Right now, what can we see? We see roars and rumours of wars. But what we can't see is what God is going to do. Although, from Simon's testimony and what he shared on WhatsApp and what you've probably seen on other things, is God is doing 
amazing, even miraculous things for the Ukrainian people and around about during the war. Food is being multiplied, as, as, um, as Simon's uh, WhatsApp uh, shared. The, the stuff that they just need is suddenly turns up at the right time. Apparently, bullets are being deflected and all sorts of things. So God is present, working, even if we don't realise it or see it. But what we can see is wars are rumours of wars. What we can't see is what God is going to do. And because of the disciples' perceived peril, they didn't die, did they? But they thought they were going to die in that storm. What was their immediate attitude towards God right there in the boat? What did they do? Can you remember? Mike, you've already got one. Give it to Jude. Give it to Jude. Yeah. I have temperature control issues. Yeah, they... There we go. See if it works. I'll borrow mics. This is open. Okay. Yeah, they basically, they, they woke Jesus up and said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to drown? The truth is, from what we know, is that Jesus cares about us more than we can fully comprehend. He said, didn't he, Jesus said that your Father in heaven, who knows even when one sparrow, even when one sparrow falls to the ground, your Father knows about it. He said, even he numbers the hairs on your head. That's how much. For me, in my conversation with my Heavenly Father, he counts one, two, three. Okay, we can have a chat now. (laughs) There's a bonus to not having much hair. It doesn't take your father long, so you can just talk instead of counting. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, Jesus said, even though even counts the hairs on your head, that's how much you're cared about. That's in Matthew 10, if you're making notes. But, frightened by the worrying circumstances, the, the disciples came to this equation. Perilous waves plus Jesus being asleep equals he doesn't care. Have you ever thought like that? The truth is that Jesus cared for them so much that, and us, that he had come to lay down his life for them. They just didn't know it yet. Have you ever been tempted to think like the disciples did? Bad circumstances plus God seems to be doing nothing equals God doesn't care. About 20 years ago, I helped lead an alpha at Poverest Road Baptist Church. And on that alpha was a really elderly, lovely gentleman. And he stopped trusting God after his experience of World War II. And it had taken him about 50 years, 40 or 50 years, to get over that and start to explore his faith again by coming on this alpha course. Because of the prevalence of evil that that man had witnessed in World War II, he'd come to the conclusion that either God didn't care or if he did, he's not worth knowing. Bad circumstances plus God seeming not to do much equals God doesn't care. How often do bad circumstances turn people away from God? You probably know someone or know some people like that. Thankfully, those of us who understand the book of Job realise that there is a real devil and what the elderly gent experienced is exactly what the devil is so desperately trying to work in the world to accomplish, causing bad circumstances and bad situations 
to turn people away from God. Now, when it came to the disciples in Jesus' boat, or the Jesus in the disciples' boat, despite the perilous circumstances, they should have known that they were going to get to the other side because... Yeah? I mean, Jesus has said to them, let us go to the other side. And what do we know about Jesus' words? They're always true. Whatever he says, it will happen. And he said to them, let us go to the other side. Whatever alarming circumstances you might be facing, may the experience of those first disciples encourage you to not let what you see talk you out of what Jesus has already said. Don't let what you currently see talk you out of what you know Jesus has already said. That's faith, isn't it? Taking God at his word no matter what. Even when it comes to wars and rumours of wars, even when it comes to sickness that you've suffered for years and years, don't let what you see talk you out of what God has already said. Trusting in the goodness of God no matter what we see or hear to the contrary is faith. It's faith that pleases him, as we learn in, in Hebrews 11. Clinging to his promises, even if it takes years and years. Faith in God doesn't need to be alarmed because faith knows at some point God is going to have the last word, even in wars. Thankfully for those scared disciples in the boat, they didn't have to wait too long before Jesus did something. Jesus stood up and he quelled the threatening storm with the three words. What were those three words? Oh, I didn't hear who it was. A vow, was it? Yes, Jesus stood up and said, Peace be still. Or in the NIV it says, Quiet, quiet, be still. Do you know what it says in the uh, New American Standard Version? Maynard, who happens to be American, was encouraging us last week to try out the New American Standard Version. So I looked up John 3.16 in the New American Standard Version. You know what it said? For God so loved football that he gave us the Super Bowl. <laughs> and do you know what it says in the footnotes? God bless America. So, so we'll stick to the, I'll stick to the NIV. No, just joking, Maynard. All right. Yeah, Jesus in the NIV said, quiet, be still. And it was. That's Mark chapter 4. Now right now, what we can see is wars and rumours of wars. But what we can't see is what God is going to do. And even though the the danger might be real and imminent, even though Jesus has promised to be with you always, but it seems like he's sleeping right now, does it mean that he does not care or he won't carry out his plan for you. Does it mean that? No. What, whether it's concerning you personally or it's concerning the wider world, don't let what you see alarm you when you can be confident that God is working on what you can't see. And he will have the last word. 
Okay. Concerning this, the Holy Spirit gives us some wise advice. If you want to turn there, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Have your finger, put your finger in, um, where are we, Matthew 24. Put your finger there and turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. What, don't let what we can see talk us out of our confidence that God is working on what we can't see and that he will have the last word. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, some quicker than others. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He's talking about a Christian's born-again spirit experiencing the union with the Holy Spirit whom we have been sealed, it says, until the day of redemption. It's where we talked about a couple of weeks ago, rejoicing. There's continually rejoicing in your spirit. You might, your body might not feel like it. Your mind might be going, well, who do I go with, the spirit or my flesh? I don't know. But there is rejoicing, this inward renewing daily. It says, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Now, he's not belittling wars and rumours of wars. He's not belittling your sickness. He's not belittling your struggles because the Paul who wrote this had lots of difficulties. We read it like me two weeks ago. Beatings, uh, stonings, shipwrecks, imprisonment, all sorts of things Paul had experienced, worse than us. But he says, for our light and momentary troubles... In his eyes, in his eternal thinking, they're light and momentary. We are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is, what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In all things, especially difficult circumstances, it helps if you have an eternal mindset. Jesus often revealed his eternal mindset to us. Do you know what Jesus said in the verse right before he told his disciples, your heavenly father even knows when one sparrow falls to the ground, he counts the number of hairs on your head. Do you know the, the verse exactly before that one, do you know what Jesus said? Come on, it's worth a dimmer switch. No? Okay, you don't have to turn there. But he was talking about physical danger. That's why he was telling them that your father knows even the number of hairs on your head. Okay, and just before he said that, the very, first, the very verse before that, he said, Do not be afraid of those, this is Matthew 10, 28 for those making notes. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So they're going to be in danger. You are going to be in danger. We are going to be in danger. That's life. But Jesus is saying, do not fear those that can kill the body. Okay, you... you at some point you're going to die, whether it's by someone's hand or sickness or the enemy, whatever it's going to be. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. However, he says, rather, be afraid of the one, meaning God, capital O, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <gasps> Did Jesus say that? The good shepherd? Meek and mild Jesus say that? According to Jesus, we should not fear physical death, but rather we should fear the one who decides what happens after that. If people are a book, this life is just the first chapter. The best or the worst is yet to come. come. 
Jesus totally had compassion for people's physical and emotional well-being. His words and his actions leave us in no doubt that he cared for our physical well-being, for people and their emotions. He cried himself when he saw other people crying. But because of Jesus' eternal mindset, thinking things not seen but things unseen, eternal, he was much more concerned about each person's eternal security. So when we hear of wars and rumours of wars, what do people fear? Death, suffering. What are we fearing right now? Another unstocked Sainsbury's. Yeah? Where am I going to get my toilet roll from? But we're thinking along the lines of, is it going to come to, are we going to suffer physically? Are we going to die? But what should, fuel as well. I mean, if we haven't got electricity, we won't need these dimmer switches, will we? So when we hear of wars and rumours of wars, what should we be actually concerned about? Our eternal salvation. That was Jesus' mindset. That's what the Christian's mindset should be. Ours and other people's. Okay, verse 6. Oh, you're not in there. Oh, yeah, go back to Matthew. You can go back to Matthew 24. You should have your fingers there. Uh, where do we get to? Verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Okay? What did Jesus mean by the end? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, well, you already got one. Okay. What did Jesus mean by his end? The end? Okay, no? <laughs> He's talking about his second coming. The disciple Peter calls it like this in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end and the culmination of all things. Okay? It's the moment creation has been groaning for ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. The Bible says creation is groaning. We know it's groaning. Where sin's curse entered the world and Satan and his kingdom of darkness have been desperately trying to stop people from loving and knowing the love of God. That is what he's been doing ever since Adam and Eve. Trying desperately to stop people knowing the love of God and loving him back. Whether it's wars, rumours of wars, sickness, famine, all sorts of things. Okay? It's going to be the end to that. It's the end of Satan's tyranny, where he and his demons will be thrown into the abyss. Now, we'll study that a bit later on, not today. And it's the beginning of Jesus' total reign on earth, where he fills all in all. Now, to get a clearer understanding of the difference in nature between Jesus' first coming and his second, I want us to read quickly two prophecies. The first prophecy, Isaiah 23, sorry, 53. Turn to Isaiah 53. The first prophecy of his coming has been fulfilled. His first coming, which is in Isaiah 53, and what he would do, has been fulfilled. And the second prophecy we're going to read has not yet been fulfilled, but we do know that it will be. If Jesus said it, it will happen. If the word of God has prophesied it, it will happen, or it has happened already. Okay, Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3. This has often been referred to as the suffering servant. This prophesied what Jesus was going to come and do, the Messiah. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, meaning sin. He was punished, sorry, the punishment that he brought us was upon him, that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy exactly, didn't he? Our sin on him. Now let's hear Revelation 19. Let's hear a prophecy of his second coming, which is yet to be fulfilled, and recognise how different it sounds from what he did. Okay, Revelation 19, verse 11. This is um, John, a vision of Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, when Jesus came to his crucifixion, he rode on a donkey, didn't he? Now he's coming back on a warrior horse. With justice, he judges and wages war. Jesus, just, justice and wages war? His eyes are like blazing, blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, probably his own, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now we know the sword is the word of God, his word. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this written name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ, but what a difference in roles. He first came as the suffering servant, but he will come again as the conquering king in wrath. As scripture points out, Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. He's the lowly lamb of God to bear the sin of the world, but then he comes back as the roaring lion to judge the sin of the world. In his own words, Jesus said in John 5, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And who better to be the judge of everyone than the very one who gave his life for everyone? And it's because of the love and the patience of God that Jesus has not yet returned to be judge. God is wanting as many as possible to respond to the gospel of the suffering servant before Jesus comes back as the conquering king in judgment and wrath. To receive by repentance and faith what Jesus has done for them. That's what God is waiting for. Okay, finally, our final scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Holy Spirit puts it like this through the, uh, the writing of Peter, his disciple. Two Peter chapter three verse three. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, meaning not following Jesus, but following their own ways. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? 
Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as if it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water by water. Meaning, what God says happens, all of it. It will happen. No, make no mistake. If he can create the universe with a word, when he says he's coming back, he's coming back and he will do it. Okay, uh, verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, meaning he's, he's done it once, partially, he's going to do it again fully. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What did Jesus say about heaven and earth disappearing? It will pass away, won't it? And the Holy Spirit here, through, uh, through Peter, is giving us some more insight that the earth will come to an end by fire. Okay. Notice also that it says the ungodly will face that same fire too. What's the difference between godly and ungodly? Repentance. Repentance and faith in Jesus. The godly belong to God and the ungodly don't. They belong to the kingdom of darkness. It says that in Ephesians 5.8. There's no grey area. You either belong to the kingdom of God or belong to the kingdom of darkness. How do you enter the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say in John 3.16? Apart from the Super Bowl stuff and things like that. What did Jesus say in John 3? To enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You can only enter the kingdom of God by being born again. Okay. The godly have come to a point where they finally realised and admitted they need the forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father that Jesus born paid for on the cross for them. When that happens, their spirit becomes born again. They are adopted as God's child and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of his son or the kingdom of heaven. But the ungodly are the ones who don't. The ungodly would be someone who is standing on the edge of an airplane 35,000 feet up with a parachute next to them thinking, it's okay, I don't need that parachute. I'm going to save myself by their good deeds or by their own religion, or whatever it is that they're thinking, they're trusting on, or the fact that I'm an atheist. There is no God. Now, you can stand on the M25 and say, there is no lorry. It doesn't stop it, does it, from, from coming and hitting you. The ungodly are the ones with a parachute next to them, jumping out of the plane, thinking, I'm okay. I'll make it somehow. Remember when I said, don't let what you currently see talk you out of what Jesus has previously said. Let me remind you of one wonderful thing that Jesus has previously said to each one of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. To perish is to not believe in Jesus and then face his judgment and subsequent fire of hell. But to trust him now as the suffering servant who died for your sin is to face him then as judge but not perish, but have eternal life. Whatever personal or worldly storms and wars we experience, and probably most of them are caused by the enemy, stirring things up, let us not let what we currently see talk us out of what Jesus has previously said. 
Believe on him and have eternal life. In the midst of wars and rumors of wars, cling to what Jesus has already said to you with all your heart. And if you do, you'll see him time and time again leading you, guiding you, talking to you, comforting you, inspiring you, working in you and through you. But if the worst case scenario happens and your physical body dies and suddenly you find yourself that you have made it to the other side, heaven's shore, then finally you will hear your saviour say to all that is trying to alarm you, quiet, be still. Let's finish off our 2 Peter 3 scripture, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come back again, as, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance.